Another installment of Show to View with Mike G, the show of life, the show of din, the show of writing prolifically, traveling all over with your wife, and really diving into the history of cocktails and spirits themselves. Today's guest is a living legend. He's done it all, seen it all, and still continues to write, still continues to distill. And I'm talking about Jared Brown of Sipsmith Gin. He was recently in town and we sat down, talked about life, talked about love, and everything in between. Great story, great history. This chat could have went on for hours. But without further ado, I hope you guys enjoy this great chat with Jared Brown. I wouldn't say that she's really changed me so much as absolutely made me who I am. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, to say that she's changed me is like saying that a sculptor changed a pile of clay into a sculpture. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Were you a loving guy going into it? Were I you would a, say so. Yeah, pretty yeah. creative guy going. Mm-hmm. I, it's it's interesting because, you know, there's a lot of married couples that work in bars and that own bars here in town. Mm-hmm. Is that creative friction a passionate thing or is it kind of a pain in the butt sometimes as you're trying to get... Those deadlines finished. In 26 years, something like 38 books we've co-authored, 2,000 articles. I would say it has never been a pain in the butt, and it has always been competitive. (laughs) It's always been real positive competition. Sure, We we like to attempt to one-up each other, outdo each other, but we also celebrate each other's victories in that at every point pushing each other forward making each other stronger what is what would be one of those kinds of competition how many chapters she's got over you maybe or discoveries oh I see. Uh, because we also do a lot of work as historians yeah so uh, as we're going along and digging trying to impress each other (laughs) things that we found (laughs) you know it's kind of cute jared that you guys still after all these years Want to get in another dig? <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I think she's got a little advantage now because she's tapped into a phenomenal information resource. Yeah. She's gone back to school. She's at Oxford, isn't she? Yeah, she's doing a double master's in English history at Oxford. Oh, my gosh, that's crazy. One of them focusing a bit more into distillation history, one focusing a bit more into brewing history. Yeah. And so, yeah, she's, she's got me there. So I got to dig a little <laughs> further in the newspaper archives and places like that. <laughs> You're going to start another distillery. You're going to go distill. Let's, I don't know. It doesn't even matter. Kachasa, but there's got to be that one-upsmanship. But I love it because it seems to keep you guys. Actually, we, we wrote the first English language history of Kachasa, Sola Brazil. That's Are one you, of our books. Really? Yeah. Well, so for me, you know, I, I've, I sorted through what is just a massive heap of accomplishments, achievements, traveling, pictures, speaking engagements that you guys have accomplished. And I was thinking, I'm like, who who have I met that kind of, who, who personifies this? And Indiana Jones came to mind. <laughs> <laughs> he was a professor, right? 
He traveled around all over the place. Mm-hmm. He, he got along with the ladies, too. I mean, yeah. you are like the super sexy silver fox professor that's train, traveling the universe. How's that? How's I that usually feel? get Jeff Bridges. Jeff that's Br- probably more of a visual <laughs> thing. <laughs> but you seem a little more articulate. Just in that case of the Big Lebowski, you seem a little Although more there articulate. was a recent turnabout two years ago to an Oscars party. A friend was at this party and close enough that when somebody walked up and said to Jeff Bridges, Hey, I just wanted to say I'm a huge fan of your gin. <laughs> My friend overheard this. You disrupted the universe. This is incredible. <laughs> Finally, this has happened that you've broke Hollywood. That this kind of traveling, this kind of notoriety, you're bound to touch base with some celebrities, right? Running in some circles. Am, Do you like that? I am terrible at recognizing people. I have, I have really? no idea who anybody is. Not a pop culture guy? Um. I mean, I love music, et cetera, but yeah. you, know, you put a person in front of me and I'll be the last to figure out that they're a celebrity. Sure. And if yeah. it's Jeff Bridges, you won't be able to tell each other apart. Yeah, <laughs> there's that. I was in, in a bar in London a while back and this guy comes in wearing a beautiful Liberty print shirt. Liberty is a very old London shop mm-hmm. uh, back in the well, 1700s or something and they commissioned great artists over the years to do the prints for their shirts. And I looked up, this guy's walking in wearing one. It was a very rare print, but I knew that it was a William Morris print, one of the pre-Raphaelite artists. Oh, wow. Okay. And uh, I just complimented him on it. And he comes over, we get talking about it. And he, I said, yeah, I collect them. I bought two of those, but I've already worn them out. And he says, Oh, so you don't just buy them to preserve them. You, you actually wear them. And I said, yeah, of course you do. Yeah. And we hit it off over that. And we get a couple of drinks. He goes over to the coat check, brings a bag of these shirts that he's just bought today. Oh, cool. We're going through them and having a great time. And the next night I come in and one of the bartenders comes straight over to me and says, Jared, how do you know Ron Wood? <laughs> like, who? Ron Wood. It, the and guitar player. You guys yeah. were hanging out. Like, I mean, you're, you're up to oh, man. friends. I'm like, who? You know, from the Stones. Like, no, he Oh, you mean his, Ronnie Wood. <laughs> no, that guy said his name was Andrew. <laughs> I can't imagine how many times in this, again, I'm going to keep calling it an illustrious career that you've touched base. I mean, before we even started recording, you showed me a picture of you hanging out with Iggy Pop or your, mm. wife, hanging, your wife hanging out. That with was Iggy my Pop. wife. Um, by the way, I would have been eight. <laughs> oh, so you're, uh, you're what, what do we call it? Robbing the grave. Yeah, well, there's there's a bit of a an age difference, but her grandfather, to give you a gauge on this, he uh, smoked and drank far too much, which definitely shortened his life. He yeah. died three days shy of a hundred. Oh man! And so um, my grandfather died when he was about eighty five. Yeah. So uh, that's pretty much our age difference right there. 15 so you years. Take, take that, well, 16 year 16, age difference. 16, yeah. Uh, you take that into account, and in terms of lifespan, we're probably the same age. See, how, in terms, because I know you guys are out in Cotswold, you've mm-hmm. got some chickens, you get this beautiful cat, you're growing <laughs> many things, such as mint. Yep. It seems like you guys are probably pretty healthy, despite all the access to drinking. You, well, you, know, you both look luminous, as you would say. 
the skin and all of that? Every every time I get a liver check, my doctor looks at the results and says the same thing. This can't be right. <laughs> You've defied yeah. medical logic. That's got to feel good. Every long-term injury that I've sustained in this, this body yeah. uh, has been from the pursuit of health. Really? Debauchery has caused no injuries yet. It's, 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 I, I like that because maybe in a way we can encourage debauchery with limited physical activity. Yeah, now, I, I like to is. push it. But no, that's you guys look very in shape. You look youthful. And you've. I think that this is, I thought about this, I think maybe this is a product of not having kids, perhaps. Um, Do you have kids? These days? <laughs> <laughs> no, not particularly. There's yeah. certainly a generation or two of bartenders at this point who really are family and yeah. children. My wife had two children of her own um, and three stepchildren. Oh, wow. Okay. Tragically, she lost her son to leukemia. Mm and her daughter to uh, an accident. Though age six, her daughter had traded places with a best friend, and the two of them insisted they were born to the wrong parents. Oh, my and gosh. And they, they lived that way. So my wife still has this woman who has always been her daughter. That's incredible. There was and, a movie, I cannot remember this movie in the 70s, where this, this young girl is reincarnated. And she says, this is not my family. This is my family. Right. And I, I, I truly think that happens sometimes that people feel misplaced, that they're born in the wrong century. Maybe they're born in the wrong sex. Right. And this is oh. how pe- people feel. But this. All right. So, you know, it's, it's hard again, because like, how do you punctuate such a lush career? Right. Like, how do I even begin to navigate such territory? Of course, we're going to end on the beam acquisition or the beam partnership in 2016. We'll talk about that eventually course sip smith as well but this all starts out as a curious guy in ithaca new york that's where you grew up right yep and your predilection towards apparently at seven enjoying wine or at least trying to understand it where does this where do you first remember saying man this really tastes good um actually my first real flavor memories we're not on the drink side, but on the food side. Yeah, yeah. Uh, age six, my friends are arguing chocolate versus vanilla. Uh-huh. And I'm arguing with my mother because the octopus has to be frozen and thawed for an octopus vinaigrette to get the texture right. Right, right. But you leave it in the freezer for two, three months. That's just freezer burnt. That dish is done. And you could already tell this. Yeah. Wow. And that was the point at which she just wasn't sure what, what to make of me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my first cooking lesson was that summer as well, and it was on a mountainside outside of Mexico City. Was you traveling with your mother? Yeah. Yeah. And the little old ladies um, brought me out into the field on this mountainside, broke off the corn cobs off the pyramids of corn drying in the sun. We ground those down to make tortillas, yeah. picked some wild arugula, some limes, and one of the caballeros showed up with a black goat over his shoulders. Oh, wow. And he slit its throat with the machete um, right there. Mm. He did it so gently, so skillfully, the goat seemed to just relax wow. in, his, in his grip. Yeah. And then he cut out some pieces and we grilled those. Mm. And that was my first cooking lesson. I mean, that's a 
very, very visceral and memory for, because you, most of us are still very removed from what we eat. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's so processed. But so is this kind of thing, did it pique curiosity about where this came from? Did it pique curiosity and how even more of this could be used in other ways? Just it, your mind just kept rolling. It seemed normal to me. Really? It seemed natural to me. Yeah. Um, when we got beef for the house where I grew up, um, we would buy a share of half a calf and uh-huh. that would be raised up. And then in a year, the butcher would show up at the house with all the rough cuts and he'd cut it down on the kitchen counter Yeah, and we'd wrap them and label them and he'd be telling us all about each cut and that filled the freezer for the year. Man. But there was another flavor memory from Mexico, which was the Teddy Limon, the Mexican lemongrass tea. Interesting. I've not had and that. And I, I chased that flavor up until about 10 years ago. I finally found it again. We're walking down the street in Tequila, Mexico, mm. and talking with some friends as we're walking along. And all of a sudden, they realize I've just disappeared into a shop. <laughs> I smelled it from out on the street. And at the back of the shop, there was a stack of boxes yeah. of this tea. You um, found it. Found it again and reconnected. But my stepfather at that time uh, was fascinated by my palate. And so at dinner, he would always bring different wines, introduce me to them, three years of informal wine training. But after that, I, I kind of realized... There must be more. So, age 10, I did my first distillation. Yeah, you, uh, it was a cold distillation of cider, if I understand yeah, correctly, which exactly. is a brilliant way to do it. It's a lot safer oh, yeah. <laughs> than, than using yeah. heat and creating something massively flammable. But yeah. you, did you... Although, f- I, I, I'd like to see a Mythbusters episode okay, yeah. on the flammability of a still, because you know, how flammable are they really? Yeah. Well, when was the last time you did a flambe? How right. long did it take you to get that thing lit? Yeah. And how easy was it to put out? To be honest, if the liquid inside is still caught fire, I expect all you'd have to do is close the door. That's right. Just cut the oxygen <laughs> and it would out. Go right out. Yeah, yeah. That's a it's a great point. I mean, you still explosions, which the, you know the, that's a lot yeah. of that from prohibition. What that probably was more than anything is they're chucking a lot of, you know, like they got some apples sitting in the thing, and an apple gets chucked up through the swan's neck right? because it's comes. boiling so hard, plugs it. Yeah. Or something else plugs the the exit, and then you're just building pressure, pressure inside yeah. there by the heat. And this has happened This happened in Kentucky, and they said that was a still ma- uh, malfunction. This mm-hmm. is a, ma- a couple of people even Somebody killed. forgot to open the valve. That's right, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. you always have to, have, well, gosh, to get in the science part of it, which neither one of us are super, super interested in. But you have to have atmospheric pressure. you got to let that still breathe. Mm-hmm. you got to let most things breathe to really feel their potential. In a sense, having this support and your stepfather saying, come on try this try this mm-hmm. there was no limit to what you were able to have access to i guess they were wanting to your both your parents also, were like it was the 70s they didn't <laughs> limit kids to access to things you know? oh man you can we walk did. to school alone right <laughs> and without a helmet on oh man that's <laughs> it is vastly different and you know what do you think that it's the fact that over what we call it helicopter parenting, I think is what mm-hmm. they call it. Do you think that that is potentially 
squishing the creative nature and the inquisitive nature of kids? Well, it's certainly limiting natural selection. I'll say that. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a piece of it. Yeah, but I, I do think that we learn through negative and positive reinforcement. Yeah. And those childhood injuries teach us things. Sure. As they should, right? Oh, yeah. Like, you know, don't finger stir Negronis. <laughs> Especially if you have a cut. Yeah. That's, the worst. That's the worst. Chopping limes for whatever. Oh, oh man. The wor- it's yeah. one of the worst things. Going to the bathroom after chopping chilies. Mm-hmm. Terrible idea. I do love that sign in the Tabasco plant that says employees must wash hands before using the toilet. <laughs> It, you know, reading into, the, or rather reading about these things and this kind of talent, you had this natural raw talent, savant-like even in a sense, in a food. Was there anything else that you would have ever pursued that you were as passionate about before you went to NYU? If it weren't for all of the math classes they unnecessarily put you through, <laughs> um, there is a good chance I would have become a pilot. Really? Yeah. What kind of pilot? Um, well, Commercial? All that I've ever flown was single engines, as in personally at the stick and right. flying. And so that is my, my only knowledge and love of wow. flying. Everything from a uh, Piper Cub, Piper Super Cub, a Stearman biplane, uh, a Mooney. And the Mooney 231 is like the Porsche of single engine planes. Oh, that thing is so fast. Age 11, um, I co-piloted one of those New York to the Bahamas. You realize how much closer each thing, each little box we check off, you are becoming closer to Indiana Jones. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to make that clear, you know. I, ironically, um, when I was a little kid, Thursday lunches were Greek lemon soup with Louis Leakey, the anthropologist. Oh, no, really? I'm not, I'm not familiar, but an anthropologist, I'm if thinking. you've heard of... Lucy, which is the earliest humanoid remains yes, yes. discovered in Africa, that was Dr. Lewis Leakey who discovered them. And you just happened to have some casual lunches with him as a student? No, as a child. As a child? Well, yeah. Well, as a ch- a my student father, of the world. My father passed away when I was very young. Yeah. My mother was a very beautiful widow. Um, she got invited a lot of places. She decided I was her experiment, and so she would bring me along um, to... See what would happen if I was exposed to remarkable men Wow! from early childhood. And I grew up where Cornell University was. So um, there were a lot of Friday afternoons when she and I would sneak into Carl Sagan's lectures. I just just did like, this would be a meme, the the face I just made. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Carl Sagan, so influential in terms of thinking and openness and just the universe itself. A brilliant man. And so you're you're in the mix of all of this stuff because your mom's saying you're capable of anything where well, we're gonna we're gonna prove that. Mm-hmm. Did it ever become uncomfortable for you? Uh, there's probably a few things if I could change my past, I might not have done I'm not so sure it was a great idea to go spend afternoons in a zero-power gamma nuclear reactor. Maybe not. I, uh, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, the terminal cancer when I was 20 oh was a, a reminder of that. Uh, you had terminal cancer when you were 20? Yeah, I was given what five type? years to live. Uh, Hodgkin's cancer? lymphoma. Hodgkin's lymphoma? Yeah. Well, that was an accurate diagnosis, it seems. Uh, 
Oh, I, yeah, I did beat it. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I could be one, really fucked up. I was up one of the first who um, underwent what was then an experimental treatment, which is now the standard regimen of um, the chemotherapy and the radiation. Right. And the benchmark, if you will. Of, I, of, yeah, and I yeah. beat it. Although that radiation, that was the rough part beyond the chemo. Yeah. And I ended up with one side effect for about 18 months called hyperosmia. What is that? I had the olfactory acuity of a bloodhound. Oh, my gosh. Oh, as if you needed that already. Yeah. Being very, it's constant food. Was and that too much? Oh, completely. I, I Honestly, I thought I'd never be able to eat garlic again. Oh, and, my gosh. I mean... That's something that can lead you to suicidal thoughts, not being able to eat garlic again. Right. Well, so the, the opposite, you know, Michael Hutchins from NXS? Yeah. He lost all ability to taste and smell. And it has the opposite thing where there's this absence of this passion. You know, there's a couple of generations that lost that. And they lost it because they were using uh, nasal decongestant sprays that contained zinc. And the zinc would permanently destroy the olfactory nerve. Oh, my gosh. And you can spot these people in conversation in a heartbeat because they don't talk about their love of food because of the flavors, but they are all on very special diets. It's all about bodily effect and bodily function really, rather than flavor passions. So they probably eat healthier than the rest of us, too. Yeah, that's okay. So I got to say this. You've spent much of your career writing about other things, writing about other categories, lost recipes, lost passions, aperitifs, mm-hmm. uh, champagne cocktails, all of this stuff. When will you, because 20 minutes with you, an hour with you, would not accurately chronicle this amazing story that you've lived. When are you going to write about you? your journey and if you say it's not interesting i'm gonna i'm gonna roll my eyes just in advance (laughs) i i keep trying to start writing that one and i'll write down an anecdote here and there yeah and then i never manage to put them all in one spot and so i keep losing them suddenly thinking that line from the end of blade runner yeah the things i've seen lost like tears in the rain right but I, I, where does this, much like it takes someone like you and your wife as investigators, as detectives, to unearth these lost facts, these lost bits of data that are there, but someone has to go in with that magnifying glass. What if we lose that stuff in those tales, in those bars conversations about you? I've hopefully done a lot of Facebook messaging with various people, so... <laughs> I guess it just takes a subpoena, right? A bunch of it will pile up out there (laughs) in the ethera and might filter back. Yeah. What if someone sat with you and spent, I don't know, three months, six months and said, Jared, let's just talk. We're going to put the recorder on. We're in a chronicle. We'd probably get distracted and never get around to the right (laughs) subjects anyway, because there are so many great things to talk about in this world. I can't imagine. Well, one of the things, you know, I think one of the most formative chapters among many, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, is the move to Boise to work for Bardenay, it is, right? Is that how yeah, you say that? And, and we didn't move there to do that. You did, so you actually moved to, 
You, you, wait, hang on. Because <laughs> you left Manhattan to move there, right? Or were you uh, guys actually, thinking Actually, we, we went on basically a seven-year road trip cool. shortly after Following we Following the dead, right? Yeah. There you go. I, oh, don't. That, I'm that, just kidding. That, I hate the dead. salt in the wounds. The, my, one of my biggest regrets in life, um, I think it's about 13, and somebody handed me a concert ticket, and I didn't go. And it was the dead at Cornell University, 1977, which today, if you go online, oh my gosh. every single deadhead calls it the best show of their entire careers. Wow. But you were only 13. It. It's a hard one. Yeah. I miss Radiohead in 95 playing all of the bands. I mean, now, of course, mm -hmm. to compare the two, it's quite strange, but I'm a kid, you know? And I just, I'll, I'll always drink that, that sorry memory away. Yeah. But you were on a road trip. And oh. you ended up in Boise, or so? Oh, here's how that happened. Um, the wife and I realized that what we really wanted to do was write. She desperately wanted me to do anything other than being a chef, because being in the kitchen is such high pressure. Yeah, and coming out of that kitchen, I was just a personality problem on legs. Mm. You know, she'd say, "So, what do you want for supper?" And I said, "Beer." And not a bad answer, but I, I was not easy to be around when I was cooking. And so we talked about what we both really wanted to do. And that was to write. And we'd each done a little bit of writing, mm -hmm. but nothing major. We knew a literary agent in common. It was one of only two people that we knew in common. When really? We met. And uh, so we talked to him. We found out years later, he wasn't a good literary agent. <laughs> But an agent, nonetheless. Yeah. He, instead of saying, well, let's get your chops up, get you some articles, get a clippings book going so that you've got something to show, he said, well, come up with some book proposals and I'll pitch them. And we did. And we came up with over 200 book proposals. Oh, man. We still have a stack of three ring binders of all the rejections that we received for wow. those. Was oh, it all in the same same genre? Oh, no. Food? No. Just about any subject please tell me what the first pitch was that was non-food related oh there was a couple of children's books that we no. pitched really? along with um one of the great designers from the the 60s um from the pushpin group seymour quast who hmm. was partnered with milton glazer who did the i heart new york all right okay. um, that was a pushpin design and um so we, there was a children's book from there. Um, there was a couple of history books. We proposed a travel book series. And, well, the travel book series didn't get taken up. Uh, Macmillan Publishing said, actually, we just need a writer to do the Fromer's Guide to Vancouver and Victoria. Oh, cool. And the British Columbia chapters for Fromer's Canada. Would you be interested in that? And we were too broke to say no to anything. You know? <laughs> That's, what was the vehicle? What was the vehicle that you were driving cross country here? A rider truck four days after the Oklahoma City bombing. Oh my gosh. So we got searched by the American side of the border at the Peace Arch yeah, getting yeah. into Canada before we even got to the Canadian side. Wow. And uh, when we pulled in, which of course we got pulled over on the Canadian side, showing up with a moving van. Right. And uh, the person, there were two people ahead of us in line at 1130 on a Friday night. One of them had been 
ejected from Canada previously for assaulting an RCMP officer and was carrying an unregistered handgun. (laughs) And the other, she had pulled her car right up on the sidewalk and was so drunk, no one could figure out how she'd driven there. And the only idea she had spilling out of this briefcase of papers was her divorce papers signed that day. So there we were. Seems appropriate, at least. (laughs) At least there's a clear narrative there. (laughs) Oh, yeah. They looked at us with our moving van with a bit of (laughs) exasperation and said, well, can you possibly tell us what's in the van? And my wife, being my wife, said, well, here's a complete inventory of the contents in triplicate. And the guy looks at her and just, it's clear he wanted to hug her at that moment. And we're just trying to get home, goddammit. Like <laughs> how long are you staying? We said, well, honestly, we're not sure. And we established a little rapport. And so he said, well, actually, you can get a six-month tourist visa. It's good for six months out of every year. Oh, nice. But at the four-month mark, go in and renew it. And you can just keep getting these six-month visas as long as you're not working cool. in Canada. Yeah, yeah. And so we ended up doing that for three years. Oh, it's a lovely love Vancouver, British Columbia. We wrote six books on it. We reviewed 500 restaurants there. We reviewed about 200 hotels wow. throughout British Columbia. It is one of the most beautiful places on I earth. Love the weather's too. Squirrels are gray. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're brown here, but that was like, I'm like a kid. It was like, oh my God, it's a gray squirrel. I go chase it around. Well, they, they've even got black ones in there. Are you kidding me? Yeah, because they brought them over from Central Park in New York. Oh, no. Yep. See, the things about being just purely curious about the world. Yeah. You know? Well, then. So we moved Boise. to San Francisco <laughs> six months, realized there were way too many parties. We were at that time trying to write five books simultaneously. Gosh. Needed a quieter place sure. because if you didn't return phone calls about a party they'd show up at your house and drag you out oh no um so we moved to boise thought it would be quiet uh the guy who created the international martini competition in between seattle and vancouver moved there the same week we did unbeknownst to us dear friend mark novak uh, legendary uh, gourmand and partier so we ended up partying with him and then <laughs> kevin settles was opening north america's first micro distillery restaurant the Bardenay, that's crazy. in a 1905 telegraph warehouse it was a 350 seat restaurant it still is and yeah. it's outstanding it's yeah because i've noticed it still open still thriving oh yeah it's incredible it's booming yeah. and not surprising because he was inspired by i believe it was the granion uh, gramercy tavern I want to say Gramercy Tavern or Union Square Cafe. It was one of the two in New York. And he'd gone in and he'd eaten at the bar. And he said the food was exactly as good as in the dining rooms, but the atmosphere was so relaxed, so comfortable, and the experience was that much better for it. And so his goal was to extend that feeling from the bar all the way across the whole dining room. Wow. So he managed that, but that was a huge place. The bar top 72 feet long, the back bar 15 feet high with library ladders. We were probably the first customers. I think we were in there an hour after they took the plywood off the windows and stuck an open sign in, asked a million questions about the distilling operation, which wasn't set up yet. And the waiter brought 
Kevin over to our table. Uh, we got talking for a bit. I think we'd mentioned to the waiter that uh, we were writing for Wine Spectator, Cigar Aficionado, et cetera, which mm. we were at that time. And so Kevin was curious. We got talking. And then I mentioned the martini book that my wife and I wrote. He pulls out a copy, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> He couldn't have been more surprised at that moment if I'd hit him with a stick. Yeah. He got up, his chair went over backward, looked at the picture of us on the back of the dog-eared copy that he had, and said, you know, I built my whole operation, the bar operation, out of your book. Man, we get got, out. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> we got talking about the distilling thing. Um, he'd never run a commercial still. We'd never done it. Sure. Um uh, but he invited us to come back the next day and, and the next day and the next day. And, and we are playing around with that. In our collective innocence, we decided to all start with gin. Yeah, There was a great organic co-op, so they had a library of botanicals. And we'd just show up with all different botanicals, distill them off separately, mm. blend them in a pitcher of spirit to see what result we were coming up with. That's great, yeah. And uh, on a beet sugar base was it really yeah the alcohol is a beet sugar base and that gin i believe it took 91 points from the beverage testing institute wow that is a beautiful gin it's still available yeah and oh i, I highly recommend it when you think about gin which it is the addition of flavor not the absence of flavor conversely with vodka right that's always how i talk about it it's I, a do you, do you not? Do you, I do want to visit. No, this no, it's concept okay. no, it's fine. Vodka sure, sure. is odorless, flavorless, and colorless. Well, just by just the legally, I mean, definition. Yeah, yeah. I have a dream of someday walking into the TTB <laughs> with two bottles and doing a blind taste test with them. One of them is a bottle of vodka, yeah. and the other is a bottle of water. Uh-huh. If they can tell the difference by smell, <laughs> it is not odorless. If they can tell the difference by taste, it is not flavorless. Right. I'll give them the, that it's colorless, but you swirl them, and one definitely is not water. Yeah. So I I think that definition is antiquated, full of beans. Yes. Well, oh, how about another chat here in a few years about how the TTP classifies things? Full of beans? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. But. Nonetheless, gin is colorful. It is compositional. You're adding these flavors. You're trying to have them be balanced. It is, in a way, our tone, our voice. As a writer, you have a voice. And your gin also exudes such voice, you know? Bright, brightness, darkness, bitterness. And it's got to be pretty fun creatively to work on a gin, right? It is. I dearly love working on gin. I would say that it's the most complex of all spirits to produce. Yeah. Um, the most challenging, but also there's so much opportunity within it uh, for creative expression. I'm a staunch traditionalist as a, a full-time historian of drink as right. well. And so I will always work within the traditions, but yeah, like a violinist playing a classical piece, there yeah. will always be your personal inflections right. within it. And so I know that my palate will influence what I produce. Yeah. Well, yeah. your life and your experiences, how you love, who you love, that all influence. And this is the thing, I try not to romanticize Jen too much, but honestly, it is that. It is a, a person's expression of their life on the page, but via spirit. 
When I was first asked how long it took to come up with a formula, I borrowed a line from Pablo Picasso, who was asked once how long it took to do a particular yeah, yeah. painting. And he replied, all my life. Exactly. Oh, that's that's beautiful. Well, we're going to start writing a song here when we're done. because <laughs> I'm getting this kind of like in my life vibe, John Lennon, and it's going to be an amazing thing. The writing continues to be successful. There are many other projects, far too many to name now. When your autobiography comes out, this is the place, right? <laughs> People, you know, this is going to be chapter three. We're talking about this session and the, there's a modern cocktail museum, lots of things with Delta Croft. But you ultimately come full circle in a sense. And in, I believe, 2008, 2009, Sip Smith comes to be. After 189 plus, 200 plus years, first distillery in London proper, you, Sam, and Fairfax. Fairfax. Thank you. They're the three partners. You guys meet at a beef eater thing. I'm just trying to speed up the narrative because, of course, this is stuff that you've shared with The Guardian, Liquor.com. You've worked with Desmond Payne on Beef Eaters 24. It was all good. On the tasting panel. Desmond uh, dude, that dude, on yeah. that. I dearly love him. <laughs> I, uh, 50 years as a master distiller of gin that's as of last year. That's amazing. I had the pleasure of talking to Tom Nichols this year, too. About, oh. And that was amazing. Yeah. Good guy. I'll put it mm-hmm. that way. Great guy. So, Sip Smith is born. You are coming into the master distiller role. Mm-hmm. Did you feel ready for it? By that point, to be bestowed such a title, yes, yeah, I I think I've I've put in my dues, yeah, oh, geez, um, yeah. in in terms, especially consulting work within distilleries, uh, the wife and I have covered everywhere from Brazil to Vietnam, yeah, uh, we'd just come off of a six-year stint of doing work in Norway and Sweden on vodka. Mm. And so, yeah, I believe I was was ready for that role because a big part of being a master distiller is sharing knowledge with the next generation, Mm. is guiding the next generation. Right. That's the most important thing is to give away the knowledge that you've built up. Do you feel, as you get older, a more not obligation, but a duty maybe to mentor and to make sure, as you mentioned, the, the bartending community in a sense is your child. I'm sure that yeah. many of the different marks with Sip Smith are also children in their own right. But do you feel like you really, really need to share everything that you've learned and give it forward? Yes, very much. I, I actually feel a sense of urgency within that. Yeah. And I'm very fortunate to be working with an outstanding team of yeah. young distillers today of Kit Clancy and Ollie Kitson and Ben and Reese yeah. and Jack and the others. And they are absolutely passionate and excited with their work. They, they love it dearly yeah. as, as I do. And so anything I can give to them and to encourage them, uh, I will. I was particularly interested. I love the concept of Navy, Navy strength gins and how you've described it as sometimes when there is more alcohol, you actually get more delicacy flavor of the juniper and it kind of expresses yes. itself in different ways. That, do you feel like you have a good amount of creative freedom to work on other projects and things besides the kind of the flagship Sipsmith? You've got the slow gin, of course. And Oh, actually, 
we have been ceaselessly experimenting. <laughs> I divide our experimentation into two categories, NPD and OPD. Tell me what, the, yeah, tell me what that is. NPD, new product development, ah. and OPD, old product discovery. Interesting. That's semantics, but I think that's very clever. So we're always reaching back as well as forward. Yeah. And we were doing so much of this on such a, a tight budget mm-hmm. that Fairfax, who is absolutely genius, he, he looked at all of this experimentation and saw a possible way to monetize it. We, we didn't have any capital to put behind this, so he decided to crowdfund. And he I didn't realize that. Put up a subscription service to get a sampling of the best of our experiments throughout oh, the year. That's shrewd. Called the Sipping Society. And you subscribe to this, and in the mail you get a beautiful box with a couple of small bottles of our one-offs. Wow. And we select those because we've done hundreds and hundreds of different I experiments. Can't and these are the best of those. We've, we um, got over 500 sub- subscribers in three days <laughs> and absolutely hit past our goal yeah. on that. We're now up to over 800 subscribers. Sadly, it's only available in Britain yeah. at the moment. We can to- fi- I can fake it. I've got some systems. I can fake an address. I can there pre- you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, that'll work. And... Uh, yeah, so that way you get to try our phantom Negroni, where we load a Negroni into the still and, you and distill it, it off. Yeah. Oh, that's oh, that's wonderful. Or the the bonfire gin, which uh, I actually smoke gin on my home barbecue on my Weber kettle. What kind of wood are you using for that? Well, I do natural lump charcoal, only lit with uh, paper, so there's yeah. no accelerant. Smells or right, right. tastes off of that. And then I soak cherry wood chips in um, vermouth, which is a great way to use up old vermouth. Yes, that's great. Which is the only reason I do that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Being and, thrifty. Yeah. Yeah. And plus sentimental. I can't just put it down the drain. I've got to do something <laughs> with it. So I'll put the gin in the freezer overnight. And then I'll, the next day I fire up the barbecue. And once the coals are down... I'll drop a big handful of these soaked cherry wood chips on. <clears throat> I've built the fire on one side in yeah. the kettle. And so I'll put the gin in a metal bowl on the bare side, put the lid on, shut the vents down a bit, to maybe add a bit more of the cherry wood chips. In 25 minutes, the gin hasn't come up in temperature enough to lose alcohol. Or become flammable, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Now, not much danger of that. And uh, <laughs> what you'll end up with is a beautiful cherry smoked gin. Oh, my gosh. Now, one Sunday, I had people coming to lunch. And so I thought, oh, I'll do two things at once. And I had that set up. And then I chucked a venison haunch on there. Oh, wow. And in Pachuga 20, in the making, kind 25 of right. minutes, the venison was ready to come into the kitchen, be sliced, and just finish saute in butter to yeah. get that smoke softened on the edges and wrapped around the meat. And uh, the gin had picked up all the venison as oh well. It was a roast game dinner in a glass. Oh, that's so amazing. The venison and juniper, it's such a beautiful combination. How often do you have people at your estate in Cotswold to uh, try these amazing concoctions? 
I wouldn't be able to say what the frequency is because it's sporadic, but yeah. I will say last Thanksgiving we had some friends over from the States and then another friend rang up and said, hey, I heard they're coming, so mind if I drop in? And we said, oh, come on, great to see you. And uh, he's still in the house. <laughs> That's the problem, isn't it? You invite some people like, you know, this couch is quite comfortable. Yeah. Jared, I, I kind of want to hang out. Is that cool with you guys? Yeah, well, I mean, like, uh, friends are welcome. He yeah. showed up with two big suitcases. <laughs> <stayed>. <laughs> and divorce papers, and he was driving on the sidewalk. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Full circle. Yeah. In 2000, late 2016, Beam acquired, I don't know if it's the right word, but they have but a, 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 a majority stake in the, the company how has that affected or not affected how has that enabled your ability to do more cool things well this could not have been a better marriage mm. uh, when they approached us one of the first things that they said is we can't pretend to understand how you have done in eight years yeah what you've done uh, and so what we'd like to do is just ring fence Britain, leave you to it. Yeah. We're going to bring lots of people over to see what you're doing. And um, it's very clear that you need international arms and legs, which sure. we were painfully aware of at that point right. as well. Yeah. Um, that was the big stumbling block. We couldn't grow. Two years ago, Lalani was my rep in the United States. And she was outstanding, working like mad. Today, I have about a thousand reps wow. in the United States. That's the abrupt change yeah. through this acquisition. But uh, unbeknownst to the people sitting down in this deal, it's a very personal history as well. Sure. Um, as a child, my wife would get dragged to summer barbecues where her father worked. And she'd play with this little kid named Fred No, because her father worked at Beam. Are you kidding me? This, so, th this is one of those faces. This is a radio face. What the fuck? Are you kidding me? This is crazy how small the world is. And then, ironically, because my wife is Eurasian, um, I'm meeting the Suntory side. <laughs> and, of course, they immediately speak Japanese to her. She looks Japanese to a Japanese person. Yeah. And uh, she'll look over at me, and I'd have to lean in and say, Ah, sumimasen, nihongo wa dekimasen, chotamatakurasai. Excuse me, my wife's not something something, right? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sorry, English is difficult, uh, but, or, or Japanese is difficult. Uh, hang on a minute. Oh. That's a, I love, again, serendipity. You know, these moments, it's like, oh, yeah, I knew those guys. I, I was raised part culturally Japanese. I worked for Nikko Hotels, Japan Airlines Hotel Division, five years in management, so five years of intensive Japanese management training. Yeah. It is a culture that I dearly love and respect. Yeah. And I thought it was a great marriage for Beam and Suntory because these disparate cultures are actually so wonderfully compatible. Yeah. And right there, you know, to join that happy marriage was perfect for us. An established writer, an established distiller, teacher, learner, educator, all of these things. Is there a weakness that you, you know, when your manager calls you into their office and like, Mike, you're doing a good job. But what do you find to be some of your weaknesses? 
I'm having a really hard time determining what exactly you have not accomplished, what you would consider a personal weakness. I sometimes don't do that well in a corporate environment Ah. uh, because I don't understand the need to wait before doing things, the need to talk things through endlessly before doing them. Um, So I tend to make somewhat independent decisions (laughs) and go forging forward for better or worse. Um, and I try to always make those the right decision because you don't want to get called out when you've done that. Right. But you know, if I have a gambling habit, it's betting on myself. That's a, I would do the same thing. And I think that as you have to invest in yourself and you, again, the massive amount of education, the massive amount of literature that you've created, these gins with Sipsmith that you've created, it makes me wonder what... Is there something on the near horizon for your your basket's full as far as far as I can see it, right? But what is one of those last things that you would love to achieve? Because for both of us, the clock's running down. Mm-hmm. Maybe mortality creates that definite mile marker for us. But what is something that's left for you that you have yet to do? To slow down and spend even a month straight in my garden at home. Oh, yeah. That is some, that's, that's actually that dream that may someday be attainable, sure. but I'm not quite sure how to get there from here. Yeah. I know it's out there. I see it. And I have a botanical research garden at home. It's about an acre, 50 mature fruit trees, wow. um, apples, pears, plums, cherries, quinces, meddlers, I can't take credit for planting those trees. And my wife and I just moved into this house a year ago. Mm. And we were so fortunate to find this place that the garden was created by someone with a very like mind, though a very different job. Um, It's uh, David Rhodes, who's Peter Gabriel's lead guitarist. No way. Yeah. Man, I'm just shaking my head through this whole thing. This is amazing. This connection of all these things, in in a way, coincidences, fateful outcomes. Is retirement a four-letter word for you? I look at Peter Dorelli, former head bartender of the American Bar at the Savoy, Mm. who retired in, I believe it was 2007. And then after about two years, he said to me, if I'd known retirement was going to be so much work, I'd never have done it. That's a lovely sentiment. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm waiting 30 years and we'll see what happens. To but be honest, retirement is something other people get to do. I know that I will never be allowed to yeah. retire, whatever retirement means, because um, aside from just recently, I wouldn't say that I've ever really had a job. <laughs> it's all been passions that, you know, I got a check out of here right. and there, but uh, yeah, that, this, this is really the first job I've had in 25, 30 years. Well, you made it look good. You made it look fashionable. You've created a wonderful community of folks that support you and your wife and the endeavors that you have, brilliant gins as well. And I know people have asked you this question, and I'm going to try to phrase it in a little bit different f- phrase or format for you. 
if you are in any, it doesn't matter which bar, but you're at any bar in the world. I think your favorite bar might be in France. In fact, I've read that, but it doesn't matter where, it doesn't matter what you're drinking, but you can have a conversation in a cocktail with any painter living or deceased. Who would you love to sit and talk about art, talk about life until the night? Goes. Salvador Dali would be surreal. Yeah. Well, <laughs> clever. That was clever. <laughs> or man, oh, there's got to be a Picasso joke in there. Now you got me thinking this dad joke thing. Going possibly Dante Gabriel Rossetti. Rossetti, uh, one of the pre-Raphaelite artists. Okay. Okay. And of the pre-Raphaelite artists, he was definitely the walking train wreck in terms of partying and out of control etc yeah. and i think he'd be a lot of fun to have a drink with sure train wrecks are the best yeah you talked about your border story that was a train wreck still seems endearing even if she's oh. drunk herself onto the sidewalk oh yeah you know it's something that we should probably be a little more accepting of sure in in life is that once in a while you've got to do that if only so that you won't be self-sanctimonious when other people do. Perfect. We're going to wrap it because that's the best soundbite I could possibly ask for. <laughs> if the autobiography does not come out, shame on me and shame on you. Because these are amazing stories. I think anybody, I've, when I mentioned Tom, people want to hang out with him and talk about his life as a gin. But the thing is, is Tom spent all those years in the distillery. You have been on the road. You've touring so it is a story an exceptional tale that people must be able to read so if i have to get a subpoena to get those facebook chats <laughs> <laughs> i will i will do it i jared it was such a pleasure she thanks so much for coming by and sipping some lafroy and another beam gym i hope you enjoy the rest of your stay in austin your first day you guys are heading juniper the meal will be exquisite i can assure you thank you so much for taking time out to chat with me Thank you so much. And I've got to say, as a first-time visitor to Austin, I have fallen in love. And I'm wondering why it was that I was going to New Orleans all those years. Because walking, <laughs> walking home last night, I looked around and I said, you know what? You guys do it better. We do. But don't tell them that. <laughs> Thanks so much, guys. Apologies to New Orleans. <laughs> So there we have it, the living legend Jared Brown of Mixellany Limited as an author, as a distiller with Sipsmith Gin, so many things he's done in the early days of distillation, learning about where these things come from, learning about where these spirits come from, the history of many, many things, and part of a very, very dynamic duo with his wife, and that's a really inspiring piece as well. So Jared, thank you so much for taking the time out to sit down and chat with me. And thanks, everybody, for listening to Show to V with Mike G. No matter how well-intentioned you are to go get this input fixed on your old Epiphone guitar, or if you're thinking, I probably shouldn't spend any more money on camera lenses, please keep dancing.